among the things that are important about being human, one that's been kind of overlooked is our ability to run long distances. And that actually played an important role in our evolutionary history because starting around 2 million years ago, at least 2 million years ago, humans became hunter-gatherers, right? Our ancestors. They started eating meat and that involved first scavenging and then hunting animals. And if you look at humans, you know, we don't look really like a carnivore, right? We don't have the features that make carnivores successful. We're not fast. We don't have claws and fangs and fur to protect us. And the technology that we use for hunting is actually pretty recent. The bow and arrow, it was invented less than 100,000 years ago. And in fact, just putting a sharpened point on the end of a spear was invented less than 500,000 years ago. And yet for 2 million years, our ancestors were hunting. So we got kind of interested in like, what was it that enabled our ancestors to hunt? And why is it that humans can run marathons and are so good at it? And so we put together all the evidence that humans are exceptional long distance runners. And there's lots of evidence that we've been doing it for 2 million years and why and how it was extremely important for our ancestors to become carnivores. So it's not what made us human, but it's a part of that kind of package, that hunting and gathering package that helped us become uh, the amazing creatures that we are. are distinctly weird. We live for a very long time after we stop reproducing, move completely differently than all of our closest relatives, lack the power of chimpanzees and other primates, but completely outdo most other terrestrial mammals in contests of endurance. If we think about bodies as hypotheses about the stable features of their ancestral environments, what do the features of our unusual physiology say about what humans are, where we come from, the details of our origin story as a profoundly successful species. And what can we learn by telescoping that story forward to explain some of the most persistent puzzles and paradoxes about our health, the way we age, our need for physical exercise, and our nearly ubiquitous aversion to habits that are good for us? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we sprint into paleoanthropology, biomechanics, and the physiology of exercise with Harvard evolutionary biologist Daniel Lieberman, author of several books, including Exercised, The Story of the Human Body, and The Evolution of the Human Head. In our rapid-fire discussion, we explore how millions of years as hunter-gatherers equipped hominids with a unique package of adaptations for endurance running, why exercise is so good for us but so generally undesirable, and how physical activity in old age helped shape us into the strongly intergenerational social apes we are today. Be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all of our references at complexity.simplecast.com. Note that applications are now open for our 2023 Complexity Postdoctoral Fellowships, tell a friend. And if you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Daniel Lieberman, it's a pleasure to have you in Complexity Podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So... Before we really rip the layers off the onion, why don't we have you talk a little bit about who you are and how you became interested in the work that you do? So I'm a professor at Harvard University in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. So the big question that motivates me is, you know, how and why did humans evolve to be the way we are? But I've become, over the years, increasingly interested in how that's relevant to health and disease and Although I started off my career as a head guy studying skulls and heads and stuff like that, I became increasingly interested in the issue of endurance running because of, I was fascinated by how we stabilize our heads during running, which is an interesting biomechanical sort of problem. And that led to interested in the evolution of running in general in humans, which led to you know, being more interested in the evolution of physical activity. And before I knew it, we were studying barefoot running because if you study running and the evolution of running, you you know, humans ran barefoot for millions of years. And before I knew it, I was studying injury and 
other sorts of things. And my career kind of took a bit of a change in orientation. And I've become basically kind of someone who integrates physiology and biomechanics and paleontology with evolutionary medicine. And uh, I guess how I sort of solved my midlife crisis, like what am I doing? How can I make the world a better place? And that's kind of how I sort of answered that question by trying to help people understand better the evolution of physical activity and how and why that can help us be healthier today in the modern world. And how were you folded into the ambit of SFI? Oh, well, that was fun. I was invited by a colleague, Dan Schrag, to come give a talk out there. And I had a great time giving a talk on that topic and enjoyed myself tremendously. It's a really wonderful uh, environment to have in-depth, interesting conversations with interesting people. Right on. So the frame around this seems to be, you know, and medias res, you're thinking about evolution. You and I, the body is a product. It's a kind of a memory of stable features of the environment. So we're going to drop people directly into what am I doing here, right? Like you wake up in a burning building and you're a human in 2022 and compost is on fire in London and everything. So let's telescope out from that and talk a little bit about what it is that makes us human. So like first, what I would like to do is have you unpack this extraordinary review that you did with Dennis Bramble, Endurance Running and the Evolution of Homo, and give a little soil in which we can plant this conversation. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, there's a long history of people trying to say that what makes us human is fill in the blank, language, tool use, abstract thinking, our ability to deny reality, whatever, right? And uh, I've never been one for that. Cooking, you know, there are many things that make us human or that are special about being human. The only thing that truly actually makes us human is if our parents are human, and that's it. But beyond that, to misquote George Orwell, right? You know, all <laughs> creatures are unique, but some creatures are more unique than others, and humans are definitely up there, right? That there are a lot of things that are special about being human. And what Dennis Bramble and I wrote about in that Born to Run paper that you just mentioned from 2004 in Nature was that we made the argument that among the things that are important about being human, one that's been kind of overlooked is our ability to run long distances. And that actually played an important role in our evolutionary history because starting around 2 million years ago, at least 2 million years ago, maybe more than that actually, humans became hunter-gatherers, right? Our ancestors. They started eating meat and that involved first scavenging and then hunting animals. And if you look at humans, you know we don't look really like a carnivore, right? We don't have the features that make carnivores successful. We're not fast. We don't have natural weapons. We don't have claws and fangs and fur to protect us. And the technology that we use for hunting is actually pretty recent. The bow and arrow, right? It was invented less than 100,000 years ago. Hunting dogs, nets, all of these are extremely recent. And in fact, just putting a sharpened point on the end of a spear was invented less than 500,000 years ago. And yet for 2 million years, our ancestors were hunting. So we got kind of interested in like, what was it that enabled our ancestors to hunt? And why is it that humans can run marathons and are so good at it? And so we kind of built up on a paper that had been written by a student of Bramble's named Dennis Carrier, who wrote about sort of the thermoregulatory advantages of humans, that humans are really good, able to sweat really well and dump heat in a way that other animals can. And he related that to running. And he published that paper, what, in 1984, and it basically died. You know, nobody paid any attention to that paper. In fact, I remember my um, professor I had, very famous physiologist at Harvard named Dick Taylor. Um, and I remember mentioning Carrier's paper on running and human evolution. He said, oh, that's just silly. You know, humans suck at running. You know, we're slow, we're inefficient, we're awkward. We're just obviously not good at running. It's just a silly idea. And, you know, <laughs> I put my tail between my legs and went off. And But I was a bit of a runner myself. And I remember thinking about that paper for years and years and years. And then eventually, um, Dennis and I started working on this paper because we're interested in, again, this problem of head stabilization. And we started thinking about how humans keep their heads still. And we spent many, many years thinking about it and writing. We spent three years writing the paper. You know, we kept calling each other up and saying, like, are we crazy? How come nobody's made this argument before? But we basically put together all the evidence that humans are exceptional long-distance runners, and there's lots of evidence that we've been doing it for two million years, and why and how it was extremely important for our ancestors to become carnivores. So it's not what made us human, but it's a part of that kind of package, that hunting and gathering package that helped us become uh, the amazing creatures that we are. One of the things you talk about in this review is that running is more costly for humans than it is for most mammals. So talking about like cost of transportation 
per unit mass. I'd love to hear you riff on that a bit. If you do the calculations correctly and you look at the scaling relationships, humans are actually just as expensive as we should be for a typical animal of our body size. So once you correct for body mass. So back in the day, it was thought that humans were really costly. In fact, there was a study, the only good study that had been done, a study that had been done was done on a single individual. I think he was from Italy and he, was, he must have been a really bad runner because in that study, this one guy came out as about as efficient as a penguin. <laughs> and I think you can imagine that penguins aren't really great runners. But more recent studies have shown that actually, if your body mass on the x-axis against the cost of transport, humans fall right on the line for mammals. So we're actually just where we should be. We're not inefficient. We are very costly though. And in this history of walking, what's interesting is that the animals that we evolved from, chimpanzees, they're very costly. So chimpanzees spend about twice as much energy to move a kilo of their body a given distance as a human. So there's an argument here for uh, small feet and big hips making running cheaper. Um, well, it's not big hips, but it's, well, biomechanics get a little bit complicated. But most animals run on their toes, right? If you think about dogs, horses, they run on their toes, but we're primates, right? Primates have these big, ugly, flat, plantigrade feet, right? And so big feet are a problem because you can break them when you run because there you have really high torques. You have high forces that act over large moment arms too. So, And chimpanzees have really long toes and australopiths like Lucy have really long toes. But once you get to the genus Homo, the toe length gets really shorter. And like, why would that be the case? Well, it actually turns out it has very, no effect on walking. You can walk with long toes and it's just fine. But when you start running with long toes, it's a real serious problem. So we shortened our toes, and that's clearly an adaptation for running. Again, because we've proved biomechanically it's not really very relevant to walking. And also, the other thing is we added an arch to our foot, right? So chimpanzees have flat feet. And there are humans today who have flat feet. About a third of Americans, for example, have reasonably flat feet. And the problem with flat feet is not so much walking. As you can tell, most of those Americans are able to walk just fine. But the arch of the foot is a spring that's used in running. And running is a spring-like gait, and walking is not. Walking is basically a pendular gait. So adding that spring to our feet was also a really key adaptation that really only makes sense for running. It has really nothing to do with walking. Hips are another interesting issue. I mean, I could yeah. go on. Look, there are adaptations literally from our toes all the way up to our heads that help us become better runners. Long Achilles tendons, for example, which are key springs. You know, chimpanzees have Achilles tendons that are like a centimeter long, maybe less, right? I mean, there's, and whereas humans, we have these really, you know, half the length of your shank, right? And they act as an important spring. We have hips that are mechanically advantageous not just for walking, but also for running. It reduces the torques in the hip. But importantly, we also have waists that enable us to move our thorax, our chest, independently of our hips. So when you run, right, you twist your upper body. Chimpanzees can't do that. When they rotate their hips, their whole upper body has to rotate with them. But we have this zone of separation between our hips and our thorax that enables us to twist so that our bodies can basically point forward as we're rotating our legs as we're running. And we also have another zone of separation between our thorax, our shoulders, and our head, which also chimps can't do. So when the chimps rotate their thorax, their head rotates with their thorax. So we've dropped down our, we've lost a lot of the muscles that connect our upper body with our heads. Those are great muscles for climbing. We lost those, right? But they enable us to keep our head still while we rotate our thorax when we're running. So thinking back into context, why are we running? Like, What other animals are endurance runners? What's going on here? Well, the only animals that tend to run long distances tend to be carnivores, right? And there are only a few, because the vast majority of animals are adapted for sprinting, for short, quick bursts, right? And the only animals that tend to run long distances naturally, right, are animals like hunting dogs, wolves, hyenas. These are animals that will run their prey down, right? But they tend to do their hunting at night, right? Or dawn or dusk when it's not too hot. And what's exceptional about us is that not only are we good at long distance running, which is again a very unusual behavior among animals, but we're also able to do it in the heat, right, when it's hot, because we're glorious sweaters, right? You know, most animals cool by panting, which is basically evaporation of moisture in the mouth and the nose. We basically turn our entire bodies into a tongue, right, by squirting water all over our bodies. And that gives us an enormous amount of surface area to cool. So we pump our blood to our surface, to our skin, right? So just below the skin, cool that blood through evaporation, and then that cools our whole bodies. And, you know, no animal can come close to humans in terms of the ability to do vigorous exercise in the heat and keep cool. We're the unquestioned champion among mammals for that. So there's competing hypotheses, though, about this, about whether this was 
about us actually running down prey or whether it was about us scavenging. I'd, I'd love to hear you unpack that. They're not competing hypotheses. No, I think they're both important. So, and in fact, scavenging certainly predates hunting. Look, you can't be any kind of carnivore without being able to run, right? So Dennis and I both agree that, you know, the most likely scenario is that, you know, and of course there has to be an advantage for some kind of intermediate feature for selection to operate on it, right? So probably what initially happened was that there were scavenging opportunities, right? If you're ever out on a safari, right, and you see a bunch of vultures in the distance, you know what's underneath those vultures, right? There's a prey item, right? But if you don't get to it quickly, it's going to be gone, right? Because scavengeable carcasses are opportunities for all kinds of animals out there for vultures, for hyenas, for foxes, you know, all kinds of critters, right? But if you can, if it's the middle of the day and you can run to get to it, you have a big advantage. You can get there before others do and have access to what's left in that carcass or the bones, etc. So it makes complete sense that the initially running evolved for scavenging, but at some point we also became hunters and we have unquestionable data that by two million years ago, our ancestors were hunting. I mean, there's clear evidence. There's large carcasses of wildebeest, and you can actually see from the cut marks on them and things like that, that the humans got there before other creatures. So by two million years ago, we added hunting to scavenging. And all hunter-gatherers scavenge and hunt, right? They don't, it's not like they don't scavenge. They do both. And so we added hunting to the mix, right? And of course, once you can hunt, you don't have to just rely on luck. You can become a real predator. You can become a real carnivore. And so I think it's a two-stage process. I would like to talk about shock absorption. Okay. Because there's something funny going on with people in terms of the way that we move from one gate to another gate. And I mean, unless someone is into exercise literature or really like deliberately thinking about this, you may not like notice, but it's, it's certainly the case that at some point you kind of cantilever over into another thing. So I'd like to talk about our joints, surface area of, and why it is that we're knobbier than other primates. Well, there are a number of demands that running imposes on the body, right? So thermoregulatory demand, there's a metabolic demand, but there's also a stress problem, right? Because running involves higher forces than walking, right? In walking, you're never in the air, right? You're always on the ground. But in running, you actually have an aerial phase and then you collide with the ground. And when you collide with the ground, you have like a, an impact with the ground and that sends a shockwave up your body. Running also involves more force because you're moving faster. And so your muscles are also generating more force. So there's a lot more force that is involved in running. And runners tend to have adaptations to deal with those stresses, right? Because force is applied to a unit area that causes a stress, and that stress causes deformation in a tissue, and that's strain. So one of the ways to cope with those higher stresses, there are a number of ways. One of them is you're learning to run properly so you don't crash into the ground, like run like an elephant. But the other is to increase the size of your joints, because if you have a given force, but you spread it over a larger area, you decrease the stress. Right? It's very simple math, right? And so if you actually look at the scaling relationship between joint size and body size, in most animals, as body size gets bigger, joints get bigger. But in humans, you can see that for our upper body, we have ape-sized joints, just what you predict from a chimpanzee scaled up to our size or a gibbon scaled up to our size. But from the hip down, our joints are much, much larger than you would predict, actually about three times larger. And you don't see that in australopiths, who we also know we're walking. You only see that in the genus Homo. And again, that suggests that that's because of the forces added to running, right? Because when you run, you need big knees, you need big ankles, you need big hips so that you can spread those forces over and not cause damage. We had a uh, SFI journalism fellow, Christia Schwanden, who talked about comparison of uh, male and female endurance runners and thinking about the stuff, thinking about the way that our toes are getting shorter and our feet are getting more compact. I've heard people project into the future evolution that we're going to lose a toe at some point? Yeah. Do you think that we're, I mean... I mean, that's all kind of fantasy evolution. I mean, look, the only way evolution is going to cause any changes is if there are heritable variations that affect our reproductive success. And I don't know anybody today who needs to run down their prey to get dinner, right? So, and furthermore, the kind of anatomy that we have seems to do quite well for running. I think we're pretty well adapted. So that doesn't hold a lot of water for me. Fair enough. I want to double back to heat dissipation because, you know, thinking about the metabolic costs of things like David Wolpert and his work on the thermodynamics of computation, how much of the brain physiology of human beings is derived due to the fact that we are runners? That's a great question. So of all the parts of your body you need to keep cool when you're running, 
nothing matters more than your brain. You know, an overcooked brain is is, is death, right? And you're using your brain, of course, when you run a lot too. So we think there's a variety of adaptations in our heads to help us keep our heads cool and our brains cool. And one of them is that we, of course, sweat more in our heads than anywhere else in our body. So if you go outside on a hot day, you know, you'll sweat profusely in your forehead and your scalp and everywhere else. And one of the things that does is it actually cools blood in your head. And it turns out that we have a really interesting countercurrent exchange system that seems to be unique in humans, whereby blood from the facial vein actually drains into what's called the cavernous sinus, which is where the carotid artery comes up to supply blood for the head. And so you have this cool blood that completely surrounds the rising blood from the core, and it creates a countercurrent exchange system. And the cavernous sinus is enlarged in humans in a way that is not in any other animal. Of course, we sweat more than chimpanzees, and, and most animals don't sweat at all, and certainly not in their heads. So we have this um, elaborated countercurrent exchange system that keeps our brains cool. We're able to increase blood flow to our brains enormously. So when you exercise, we have a reticulated system that increases blood flow to the brain. It seems to be elaborated in humans. If you cool the blood in your core, that cooled blood from the core is going to keep your head cool. And then finally, we may have some interesting adaptations to cool blood from the scalp that actually cool the brain itself. So again, another kind of radiator system in the diplo that Oh, and finally, we have noses, right? So noses um, are also cooling systems, right? Because we exchange not just moisture, but also heat in our noses because of the airflow in the nose. And, so, and we dump heat through our mouth. So when you're running, you're not using your nose so much, but you're also breathing out with your mouth, and that's a heat dump. So on a cold day, if you breathe out of your nose versus your mouth, you'll see much less moisture leaving your nose and your mouth. The same would be true also if you put a heat sensor because you're actually capturing more moisture and heat in your nose. But when you breathe out through your mouth, you're just dumping it. And so we become obligate mouth breathers. And the vast majority of animals, when they run, don't breathe through their mouths. They breathe through their noses. The only other creature I know that is an obligate mouth breather uh, when they run are horses, although sheep do it to some extent. There are probably some other animals as well. So we just open our throats and bam, we just dump heat when we run. Let's move on to this paper that you wrote with Frank Marino and Benjamin Sibson, The Evolution of Human Fatigue Resistance and the Journal of Comparative Physiology. Because... This is another thing that, you know, I mean, most people have had that, uh, would, you, was it, would you rather fight Joe Rogan or a chimpanzee? It's like, oh, you'd rather fight Joe Rogan. But there are strength, power, and stamina trade-offs. So what are we talking about here? And why is that lensed in the way that it is through the body of the human being? Well, we wrote this paper because there's been very little research thinking about fatigue, the evolution of fatigue. And of course, fatigue is really important if you're doing kind of physical activity. And there are sort of many dimensions to what makes us exceptional in endurance. Because essentially, most creatures, and that's implied in your Joe Rogan chimpanzee comparison, most creatures are adapted for strength and power and not for endurance, right? So chimpanzees are typical, right? They can sprint for about 100 meters and then they run out of gas. They rarely walk more than three or four kilometers a day. And when they do, they're like exhausted and basically do nothing the next day. They're power animals, right? But we can run marathons and go hiking all day long and be fine the next day. And part of that comes from a classic trade-off because we have different muscle fibers that are good for producing power and strength. Those are type 2 muscle fibers versus muscle fibers that are really good for endurance that are metabolically less costly and more aerobic. And those are type 1 or slow-twitch muscle fibers. And humans have a preponderance of, of course, there's a lot of variation and depends on muscle to muscle. But in general, the average human being is much, much more endurance adapted than power adapted. And because of the way those muscle fibers work, those lead to less fatigue. So it's evolution again, you know, an evolutionary signal of selection for endurance and fatigue resistance. And there are a whole bunch of other features of the human physiology, which we think, again, sort of play into that general argument. But of course, there's variation in humans. And you know, people like Usain Bolt are more power adapted, speed adapted, and people like you know, me are more endurance adapted. And you know, variation is the stuff of life, right? Humans are no exception. I want to hear you talk a little bit about the difference between the different kinds of muscle fibers, because, you know, not being so specific to human beings, I think about the evolution of homeothermy in fish. You know, it's an underappreciated fact that the red meat of a tuna is, you know, because they are endurance swimmers. And in fact, mm -hmm. leatherback sea turtles also have some amount of regulation. That's right. And even with the mammalian world, like, you know, skunks, if you ever meet a skunk and actually 
it doesn't spray you, whatever, and you get a, get a chance to look at its muscle fiber types. Skunks are almost entirely slow twitch muscle fibers. Skunks don't have to run away from anyone, right? <laughs> they stand their ground and everybody runs away from them, right? So uh, skunks are like totally endurance, you know, slow twitch dominated. So there's a lot of variation out there in the animal world. You just mentioned some other great examples, certain birds, etc., are endurance adapted. So there's, you know, selection goes back and forth and back and forth across the tree of life in terms of adapting animals to different kinds of functional tasks. What's interesting about humans, of course, is we evolved from apes, right? Not from tuna or skunks or turtles, right? And so our ancestors, our ape ancestors, are clearly power adapted. They're not adapted for long distance running. They're not adapted to be metabolically very efficient in terms of um, locomotion. So that's the key evidence for selection. But then once humans evolved, there's been recent selection for variation within human beings. And I think a lot of that actually started with the origins of agriculture. So when farming comes along, all of a sudden, endurance becomes less important and power becomes more important again. And so I think there's compelling evidence. There's a gene, for example, called actinum 3, which is a gene that affects your ability to produce speed and power. And that seems to be a fairly recent selection, probably, you know, probably post-agricultural and a higher percentage in some populations which are more power adapted. So or at least individuals that are more power adapted. There's again, as with all human things, there's much more variation within any population than variation between populations. So we have to be very careful about not exaggerating population level differences. Mm. So there's a passage in this paper where you say, given that muscles with high proportions of type one fibers generally function to maintain posture and stabilize joints, and these functions stay vital with aging, it may be the case that the increase in the size of the slow motor unit pool functions to preserve mobility and physical activity into old age. This makes sense from an evolutionary anthropological perspective as older adults and hunter-gatherer and subsistence farming societies stay active throughout their lifespans, continuing to walk, dig, and carry into their 60s and sometimes 70s and 80s. So this is where I want to get into the meat of the conversation. I mean, you know, it's a conversation about meat, but the talk that you gave at SFI was about this active grandparent hypothesis. So it's not just that we are adapted for running, but that within an individual, that there appears to be a development in the amount of running that we seem to be adapted for, or a physical activity that is good for us as we get older, or what's going on here? Okay, so... First of all, let's be clear about running. So although running, I think, played an important role in human evolution, we evolved to be occasional runners. We're mostly walkers. And the endurance running hypothesis is not this idea that we evolved to just basically run around the landscape nonstop, 24-7. If you go out and look at any population on the planet, hunter-gatherers, you name it, who most of the time when they're physically active, they're going to be walking. So walking is the most fundamental form of human physical activity. And occasionally, we would run, right? And it would have enough for there to be selection for running to be added on top of walking. There's no compromise between running and walking, right? You can do both. And clearly, uh, hunter-gatherers, especially as they get older, one of the things that makes humans special is that we have this long life history, right? Most animals don't live beyond the age of reproduction, but humans are unusual in that we tend to do so. You know, humans who survive childhood in hunter-gatherer societies tend to live between about 68 and 78. So they spend about two decades post-reproductive lifespan on average. And those two decades are not spent in retirement. They don't move down to Florida and you know, sit on a beach or play golf with a, you know, a golf cart. Every day they're out there hunting and gathering, and they're collecting a surplus of food. We have plentiful data which shows that. And what they're doing with that surplus, they're giving it to their children and their grandchildren. They're helping pass on energy, as well as you know, wisdom and knowledge and all that. But they're also passing on calories to their offspring, which of course increases their reproductive success. And most of that physical activity, which we evolved to do and continue to do as we get age, is endurance physical activity. You know, walking, digging, carrying, all those sorts of things involve, require endurance. And as you get older, those kinds of tasks become more important, not less important. Selection is operating them. So we evolved to be physically active in general. We evolved to be endurance physical athletes in general. And as we evolve to do that as we age, and what we've argued in this endurance active grandparent hypothesis is that we not only evolve to be physically active as we age, but that the physical activity itself helps us age well. Because what physical activity does is it stresses the body and it turns on repair and maintenance mechanisms that help us age well. And it turns on mechanisms that prevent metabolic damage and mitochondrial damage and keep us from getting high blood pressure and repair DNA and all kinds of other 
repair maintenance mechanisms. And of course, we know that one of the best ways to age in a healthy way is to stay active. You don't need me to tell you that. That's a kind of well-known. But we're arguing that there's an evolutionary origin to that. And we tend not to think about that much because A, we tend to think, you know, a lot of people focus on lifespan, not health span. And until recently, until the modern medical era, health span, which is the years you live without any sort of major disease, equaled your lifespan. Because once you got sick, you died, right? There was nobody, there were no pills to keep you alive once you had heart failure or osteoporosis or whatever, right? So we evolved to not only be physically active, and that physical activity itself turns on repair and maintenance mechanisms, which also help us to live long. So it's a kind of a feedback system here. And of course, as we get older, the kinds of physical activities that are important for grandparents tend to be endurance physical activities. You know, they're not out there, you know, wrestling bulls and, you know, racing lions and stuff like that. They're doing standard, good old fashioned walking and carrying and digging that are just so essential and so fundamental to being a human until the age of machines. You noted in your talk that very few chimpanzees in the wild live past the age of 30 or 40. But on average, even hunter-gatherers, and this is, again, to poke a hole in the widely misinterpreted average life expectancy due to like child mortality rates, Yes, that even in hunter-gatherer societies, we're still talking about life expectancies of 68, 78 years. Yeah. You need to talk about uh, burning. I don't know if this is fair, but burning twice as bright and lasting half as long. It seems like uh, the power endurance trade-off between humans and chimps. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that's what it's about. I mean, I think, I mean, humans just basically are energetically amazing species and we acquire a lot of energy when we eat really high quality foods and we devote a lot of that energy to our resting metabolism. And we use that energy to live our long lives and be physically active all that costs energy. So we're just kind of gas guzzlers of the animal world, right? And or at least compared to our ape ancestors. And that helps us have this extraordinary life history. There's this idea out there, this misconception that you just mentioned that, you know, life in the Paleolithic used to be nasty, brutish, and short. People would die young. But that's kind of a confusion that occurs because of high infant mortality. So life expectancy is low among hunter-gatherers because of a lot of hunter-gatherers die in the first few years of life. If they make it through the first few years of life, they're likely to live long and healthy lives. And in fact, if you go to your typical hunter-gatherer population, a quarter of the population are grandparents. And that tells you just you know, how impressive human longevity is. And remember, those are contexts, those are environments without any medical care, right? There's no doctors keeping these people alive, right, and healthy. They're staying healthy because they have healthy diets, but also they're staying healthy because they're staying active. And you want to increase your risk of dying young or being sick and having to take pills for several decades before you shuffle off this mortal coil, becoming sedentary is probably one of the best ways to do that. <laughs> so in so much as uh, the active grandparent thing, I have two small children and my wife seems to be considerably hungrier than I am at all times. And that's a, you know, that should be obvious. You mentioned that uh, female hunter-gatherers are in a deficit until they become grandparents. And then at that point, they're consuming more than they produce, but then things flip. This is the crux, it seems like, right, upon which this hypothesis is all resting. It's an important component of it. I mean, this is not my insight. This is research that was published by Hilliard Kaplan and all many years ago. But it's an important component of the hunter-gatherer system, right, which is that Females, we usually call the ecological species, right? They're bearing the cost of reproduction, right? And so reproduction is expensive, especially lactation. You know, producing milk is metabolically very costly. Furthermore, if you're a female in most of these societies, you're doing more of the childcare. And so you're taking care of kids and you're busy, you know, taking care of small ones. You're also out there foraging. And it's very hard to get enough energy to pay for your needs plus the needs of your children. And so in general, most of these societies where people have collected good quality data, the females tend to be in a deficit. They're not able to get enough energy to pay for their needs and their offspring's needs. And so they need help. And where does help come from? Well, help comes from their grandmothers who are, who are gathering a surplus. So they've got more than they need. So they pass that on. And also they're getting it from husbands and cousins and aunts and uncles and you know others, right? So that kind of cooperative society is utterly fundamental to the hunter-gatherer way of life. Surplus doesn't just come out of nowhere. That surplus comes out of physical activity, right? They're not just sitting around, you know, ordering stuff on Amazon, right? They're out there, you know, getting food and getting food until recently required being physically active. And that's why we evolved to be physically active is to either get dinner or avoid being somebody else's dinner. And for the most part, it's get to get dinner. 
And you do that every day of the year. There's no retirement. There's no weekends. That's what we evolved to do. And now we live in this bizarre modern world where machines do everything for us and we're paying a huge price for it. I mean, certainly the literature is thick on walkability and staving off a senile dementia, that kind of thing. Although I've mostly heard it more in terms of it being a matter of mapping one's environment, like strengthening the hippocampus. No, wait, sorry. If you look at the data, there's nothing, nothing comes close to physical activity for promoting neurogenesis and for preventing dementia. Nothing comes even remotely close in terms of the epidemiological and the mechanistic data. For example, the effects of physical activity, especially vigorous physical activity, on reducing risk of Alzheimer's, it's like an order of magnitude greater than any kind of mental acuity or whatever, you know, test or whatever. If you want to save off Alzheimer's, the one thing you can want to do is stay active. And by the way, the more vigorous it is, the better it is, by the way. So walking is helpful. Adding some vigorous physical activities like running or swimming or using the elliptical or whatever the hell you like to do uh, has huge effects. Nothing comes close. Nothing, nothing by an order of magnitude. This seems like an opportunity to ask you to unpack the story of the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Oh, yeah, BDNF. Totally cool. So there are quite a bunch of molecules that are important for the brain, and one that's received an enormous amount of attention is brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor, or BDNF. And the fascinating thing about BDNF, so it's, sometimes some people call it miracle growth for the brain, but it has a number of functions. But one of the things it does is it promotes neurogenesis, it promotes stability of synapses. It keeps astrocytes, which are glial cells that kind of maintain the neural connections and the brain healthy, probably reduces inflammation that may be astrocyte derived. And it's upregulated by physical activity, like nothing else. And when we think the reason for that is again, evolutionary, because BDNF actually didn't evolve as a neurotrophic growth factor. It actually evolved as a metabolic signal in muscle. So BDNF is turned on in skeletal muscle and it activates AMPK and which is basically releases energy, right? And that system was then co-opted by the brain later on in evolution, but it's still upregulated by physical activity. The thing about humans is that we never evolved to turn on that system in the absence of physical activity for the simple reason that we never had the chance not to be physically active. None of your ancestors were able, able to sit around and be couch potatoes and not have high levels of BDNF turned on by their physical activity. So there never was this kind of modern mismatch of sedentism and low levels of BDNF. Until we can you know, find some pharmaceutical way to turn up BDNF levels, if you want to keep your brain happy, that's why physical activity is so important. So with respect to that mismatch between sedentism and physiology, cancer, right? This is something that comes up on the show a lot. You know, cancer being apparently quite a metabolic problem. Yes. And obviously we don't have excellent records dating back all the way, but it doesn't seem like cancer has historically been quite the problem that it is now. And, and why is that? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, cancer is a result of multicellular life and all our multicellular organisms have cancer. So it's not a new thing, cancer, right? It's a byproduct of evolution. And it's a kind of evolution that's gone kind of awry in the body. But there's compelling multiple lines of evidence that cancer rates are increasing. And you can just look at it this the last few decades. It's, you know, as countries become wealthier, their cancer rates go up, right? And if you look at the data on physical activity, people who are less physically active have much higher cancer rates of almost every kind of cancer you can think of than people who are more physically active. And that makes total sense because what feeds cancer cells? Well, energy, right? Cancer cells are cells that are competing for energy from other cells. And so when you don't spend physical energy on physical activity, that energy goes to other processes and one of them is cancer. So for example, high levels of insulin, which is your basic anabolic hormone, are closely related to levels of cancer. So physical activity drops your insulin levels, right? Because you're producing glucagon when you're physically active. And high levels of mitotic hormones like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone are all increased cancer rates. You know, most breast cancers are strongly related to higher levels of progesterone and estrogen. You know, when you're not active, what does the body do? It says, ah, got more energy available. Let's shunt it towards reproduction because after all, that's all that natural selection cares about. If you have any extra energy, you win from a selective perspective if you shunt that towards energy. So people are less active, their heart estrogen levels shoot up, their progesterone levels shoot up, which increases their risk of breast cancer. And people, we have multiple, multiple, multiple studies which show that physical activity dramatically lowers a woman's lifetime risk of 
of estrogen progesterone sensitive uh, breast cancers by 30 to 40, by some estimates, 50%. It lowers colon cancer rates. It lowers almost every kind of cancer you can think of. And there are other effects. One is to reduce the amount of circulating glucose, right? Most cancer cells are sugar hungry or they don't engage in aerobic respiration. It's called the Warburg effect. And so physical activity lowers those levels. So there are many, many pathways by which physical activity decreases cancer rates. Now, of course, it's not the only factor that is responsible for increased cancer rates in the modern Western world, but it is an important one. And I mean, you just have to be a flat earther not to appreciate the many, 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 many studies that show that physical activity rates are strongly associated with lower rates of cancer. And strangely enough, when we talk about cancer, we rarely, as a society, talk about how to prevent cancer and how physical activity is a very clear, unquestionable form of prevention. And from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. And from a mechanistic perspective, it makes sense. And of course, there's abundant data, both epidemiological as well as mechanistic, to explain why that's the case. It's sadly under-discussed. And yet, one of the funnier parts of the colloquium you gave was on how you would think perhaps, that physical exercise is good, therefore we should be putting zoo animals on treadmills and and so on. And yet what we find is not that. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so, well, again, that's kind of a prediction of the active grandparent hypothesis is that there's been special selection in humans. And again, remember, humans are different from zoo animals because we have this long post-reproductive lifespan. Now, we've been selected to be, A, very physically active and do a lot of endurance physical activity, but also to do that as we age, and that physical activity as we age is maybe an important mechanism by which we age in a healthy way, increase our health span, right? And so one prediction is that physical activity may play a more important role in maintaining health span in humans than in other creatures. And sadly, there's just not a lot of good data on this, right? Because, you know, it's just not something that people are studying. But there are quite a few studies where people that put mice and rats on treadmills or measure their wheel running and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't have the benefit in rodents as it does in humans. There's a mouse selection experiment that's been um, done by a guy named Ted Garland in um, UC Irvine, I believe is that. Really cool. He's bred these mice to be super runners, marathon mice, right? And these mice, they actually live less than than the mice who are running less. And they want to run, right? They have this intrinsic desire to run and they run ridiculous amounts, right? It's also true that you know, zoo animals who you'd think would um, get less physical activity and once, you know, what's correct for diet, et cetera, you know, because they're more sedentary, they'd pay a price for it, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. They're not senescing at a slower rate. So, so far the evidence suggests that this is really a, a phenomenon. It may be special to humans or it may be more intensely, maybe sort of shifted up in humans. We don't know. We need to do more research on that topic. So that's really kind of more hypothetical, but it's an interesting sort of glimmer of data. So, I mean, based on all of this, what is the prescription? Obviously, it's fairly common for folks at SFI to have standing desks to go on walking meetings around campus. You know, what are the ways in which you can imagine our life as modern human beings adjusting within the constraints of the institutions and the infrastructure that we've enveloped ourselves with that can adjust and actually accommodate to this and make sense of it. I mean, it's not Peloton, right? You know, this is the 64 gazillion dollar question, right? Because one of the problems with exercise is that exercise is discretionary, voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And nobody did that until recently, right? When you live in an environment such as our ancestors did, where energy is limited, and you have to be physically active in order to get food in the first place, any extra physical activity is a really stupid thing to do, right? It's going to decrease your reproductive success. So we evolved to be inactive whenever possible. We evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only, when it's necessary or when it's rewarding. And so if we're going to improve people's physical activity today, we need to understand that those instincts are deep and fundamental, right? And if you ever have an escalator next to a stairway, people are going to take the escalator, right? Even though there were no escalators in the Stone Age, right? It's just an instinct to save energy. And we tell those people they're lazy, but they're not lazy. They're just normal. They're just acting on basic and fundamental instincts. So in the modern world, we need to find ways to help people be more physically active when we no longer have to do it because machines have replaced human labor with, you know, just press a button and dinner arrives, right? So we need to find ways to do it. But I think using evolutionary logic, The only two ways to do that are to make it necessary and rewarding. That's going to involve some social engineering. So in schools, for example, we need to promote physical education more. I mean, most schools are pathetic in terms of the, you know, the amount of physical education that kids get in schools. And of course, the habits that you develop in school tend to be the ones that you live and retain for your life, especially in college. 
Most universities have completely given up on physical education. Harvard is no exception. Uh, we used to have a physical education requirement, and it was abandoned in 1970. That's true of almost every American university. And the ones that are left tend to be pathetic, right? So we don't do that. And also, you know, we live in environments where, you know, okay, it's great that you have walking meetings at SFI, but most places don't do that. So we need to find other ways to do it. And again, we're going to have to be creative, right? And again, make it necessary, make it rewarding. And there are, are ways to do that. I think the way to do that is to treat exercise like education, another abnormal modern behavior that we never evolved to do. And how do we make it work? We make it necessary, make it rewarding. School is fun. We meet friends there. We do all kinds of things apart from learning math and biology and whatever it is you learn in school. And we need to find ways to do the same thing for exercise. And the sky's the limit, really. Or things like dancing, right? How many people think of dancing as exercise? Uh, but it's physical activity that's rewarding, right? And uh, why not have more dancing? I mean, I could go on, right? But that's what we're going to have to do. Standing desks are great. You know, they prevent you from being completely inert. But standing desks are not forms of exercise. So let's not equate that with... And actually, there's yet to be any good data showing that standing desks have really major benefits. I suspect they do, but there's no data on that. The spirit of the show is one in which you know, this often links out from the central topic into these, you know, these other things. And, and listening to all of this, I can't help but think of the conversation I had with Stephanie Crabtree and Devin White on their work reconstructing the migratory pathways that the peopling of the continent that is now Australia. And they started out thinking, okay, let's look at satellite data and let's map least effort paths across the landscape. That's the laziness piece, right? You would expect that that's how it works. But what they realized is that by talking to people that actually live in these spaces, that these people orient themselves with visual landmarks, uh, kind of like a ritual or sacred monuments, you know, like Ayers Rock being the most well-known among them. And that as soon as they included line of sight visibility and orientation into their model and included this piece about the meaning or the significance of going out of your way to visit a particularly interesting spot. Their pathways that came out of the model much more closely resembled the actual Aboriginal songlines. And what people that live there say is the actual map, you know, the foot network for Australia. And so when you're talking about social engineering, I think a lot about making things intentionally difficult for the fun of it. And the importance of that, and I don't know if you've seen this film, uh, it's a spectacular documentary, 3100, Run and Become by oh, yeah. Yeah, Sanjay Rawal. I spoke with him a while back and it was an interesting conversation about just the persistence of endurance running as a kind of ritual or sacred activity across human cultures. Oh, absolutely. So I'd love to hear you riff on that because it seems like that's really what we're getting at here, that it's not just the empty like hamster wheel thing. But it's about, you know, having a reason. Sure. As I said, you know, we evolved to be active for two reasons. One is necessary and rewarding. And a good example of that uh, that I've written about are the Tarahumara, the Native Americans that are well known for running long distances. It turns out every Native American population, every Native American peoples have long distance running traditions. It's just that most of them have been lost as they become westernized. And the Tarahumara, because they're still very isolated in the Sierra Tarahumara, have sort of maintained a lot of their old traditions in ways that a lot of other groups are struggling to keep up today. And one of the things that you'll learn if you look at every Native American running tradition is that running has a spiritual dimension. One of the things that, one of my things that I really dislike about the book Born to Run, which <laughs> I've popularized at Armara, is that it never mentions that the main reason that they do these Rara Hippies, these long races, is that it's a form of prayer to the Tarmar. Completely left out of the book. And it's really spiritually very important to them. And that's true for Navajo and Hopi, and I could go on, right? Every population, it's true for wherever you look around the world. And I think that makes sense for just the reason that you've articulated. It's part of who we are, and it plays important roles, and it helps train people for multiple reasons, but it also helps us thrive and endure in various ways. And furthermore, there are other interesting spiritual dimensions that come from endurance. One of them is that you can enter a kind of a trance-like state. There's a really interesting hypothesis that some of the rock art from Southern Africa, much of it depicts hunting scenes. But a lot of those hunting scenes involve animal-human transformations and evidence for sort of trance-like states that is a consequence of long-distance running. Anyone who's had a runner's high can tell you that 
when you run, it becomes a kind of a spirit. I'm not a very religious person. I'm not a religious person, but I've experienced runner's highs. And it is a very kind of spiritual, kind of trance-like feeling that you get from doing endurance. It's part of the same phenomenon. And I don't think it's not coincidental, this relationship. And of course, also in, in most societies, a lot of endurance acts are very social. As an example, think about the modern marathon movement, right? You know, the biggest single day charity in the world is the London Marathon. You know, it's hard to get into these marathons. I mean, you try to get into Tokyo or Berlin or New York or whatever, Boston Marathon. I mean, you have to get on waiting lists for years or pay ridiculous amounts of money. And there's so many people who want to do it. And But they're doing it as a group and you're doing it with other people. And there are millions of people watching you and you're raising money for charity and they're giant community events. And anybody who's participated in a big city marathon knows that. You're not just running for yourself. You're running for the community around you. And you're doing that to help people as well as yourself. And that is a part of the ancient history of physical activity because we aren't physically active just for ourselves. We're physically active in order to help each other. And running is a part of it, not the only part of it, but is a part of it. You know, it strikes me that one of my daughter's favorite films is Wally. You know, where humans go into space and they all become cybernetic couch potatoes and the bone density drops. But the motto, the uh, slogan of the state of Kansas is Ad Astra Per Aspera. It's not Ad Astra on your ass, you know. So it's like there is something kind of tragic and yet wonderful about the fact that we are destined to make things difficult against our own drive for laziness. I don't know. It's just a curious paradox that I find your work really speaks to. And I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that we haven't asked? Is there a big question? You could go on for hours. I mean, obviously, there's tons to talk about. But let me conclude on the following thought, which is that we have this idea that's been common in Western thought for millennia, right? St. Augustine, for example, that there's this kind of separation between the mind and the body. My colleagues here at Harvard certainly think that, right? Where our job is to educate our students' minds. (laughs) to hell with their bodies, right? Feed them crap and who cares if they exercise or not, right? But that's just a completely false dichotomy. And the more I study the evolution of physical activity, the more I realize that those connections between the mind and the body are completely artificial. They're part and parcel of the same integrated systems. And we are in trouble when we forget that. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. This has been a a fun conversational sprint with you. And I really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks a lot. My my pleasure. Good. All right. Take care. And, uh, Apologies for rushing off. Oh, no problem. It's okay. All right. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.